We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Willerskin booking the guests. In the legendary CHML newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. For your security, everyone on the show has been vetted. Oh, and there good. is no chaos in the house. Oh, thank goodness. Here's Scott Thompson. You don't want to just let anyone in. Don't tell the Prime Minister. By the way, does anybody know where the hell the Prime Minister is? We haven't seen him for a couple of days. Where is he? Remember, that was the same thing that happened when the convoy, the Freedom Convoy, showed up in Ottawa. He took off. He came in contact with somebody who was COVID or something. So that was it. He left it for the mayor and the police chief to handle. And then came in about a week later to solve all the problems. It is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's unbelievable what is going on. And the prime minister is nowhere to be found. And there's liberal after liberal just falling on swords in the House of Commons. And just like David Johnston, uh, we've, we've lost the Speaker of the House. This happened at about 2 o'clock this afternoon and just over an hour uh, ago. And um, what everybody thought and is, was expected to happen, happened. And uh, the Speaker resigned. But Again, the prime minister nowhere to be found, not yesterday or today in the House, and letting uh, Katrina Gould, uh, the speaker for the Liberal Party, uh, handle all of uh, the 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 <laughs> all of the 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 anger from all of the opposition and the rest of Canada, and the prime minister is nowhere to be found. I guess trying to distance himself from all of this because everybody's saying, well, the speaker was just freelancing. Okay, he was, and he's resigned for that. But why was the uh, speaker allowed to freelance? You still knew who was coming through the door. So, you know, whether he introduced him, got a round of applause for the Nazi, uh, you know, how did he get in the house? Because there's nobody at the door checking that stuff. And you've got the leader of a country who's at war with Russia coming to speak. It's jammed. It's packed. It's dignitaries. So uh, I'm sorry, but just like with India last week, uh, you know, just like with David Johnston and in a public inquiry and the Chinese Communist Party interference in the last two elections, the prime minister's running away. He's running away. And it was interesting because, you know, it wasn't until this morning when uh, Melanie Jolie and the speaker, uh, Katrina Gould, spoke up. They were the first two liberals to say this guy's got to go. Um, so, again, just getting everyone else to do his dirty work. And then you heard Champagne says, well, I hope he makes the right decision. Then Christia Freeland, well, you know, I hope he does the right thing. Like, oh, my God. Does anybody have anybody's back in that party or are you too busy stabbing each other in the back? Like, it's unbelievable to see. And, you know, I think another thing that I, I just found absolutely incredible was that at the beginning of all of this, Katrina Gould, the speaker for the Liberals, stood up and said and, and was speaking for the prime minister because he was nowhere to be found today, even though he's in Ottawa. He met with the B.C. premier yesterday. So, you know, maybe they should send in the B.C. premier. Uh, anyway, Katrina Gould said she wanted what what Anthony Rhoda, the speaker, 
had said in the House of Commons erased from the record. I would like to ask for unanimous consent to adopt the following motion. That notwithstanding any standing order, special order, or usual practice of the House, the recognition made by the Speaker of the House of an individual present in the galleries during the joint address to Parliament by His Excellency Volodymyr Zelensky be struck from the appendix of the House of Commons debates of Thursday, September 21st, 2023, and from any House multimedia recording. Unfreaking believable. Why do we keep records? Because to keep track of everything everybody said good? No, we keep records for when we need to go back and examine as evidence, specifically examples like this. And Katrina Gold, the Liberal Speaker, stands up and asks for unanimous consent to have this taken off the record. What kind of authoritarian state are we living in? And now, today, asking for the man's resignation. Yesterday, not asking for it. Got to wait and see what happens. But then today, yeah, you got to go. And by the way, can you take this off the record? And of course, the opposition said, no, you can't. But the fact that someone even asked from this government for this to be canceled, erased, taken off record? Who the hell is driving the bus over there? All right, let's go to the clip. This is Anthony Rhoda actually uh, handing in his resignation. This was uh, about 2 o'clock this afternoon. Have your attention, order. It's with a heavy heart that I rise to inform members of my resignation as Speaker of the House of Commons. It has been my greatest honor as a parliamentarian to have been elected by you, my peers, to serve as the Speaker of the House of Commons for the 43rd and 44th Parliament. I have acted as your humble servant of this House, carrying out the important responsibilities of this position to the very best of my abilities. All right, so uh, that is the speaker, Anthony Rota, resigning just an hour ago. Uh, Here's what Jugmeet Singh had to say on uh, this whole issue. The prime minister invited President Zelensky for a very important purpose, which is to shore up support for the war in Ukraine. But what has happened has been the opposite. The visit was marred by this incident that is now being used by the aggressor, Russia, and propaganda to attack or to take away from, in a deleterious way, the efforts of the war. So this is worldwide stuff. People are talking about this everywhere. Last week, it was India. Then it was, oh, no, we don't need a public inquiry into Chinese Communist Party interference, yet Michael Chong, an MP, is testifying before Congress in the United States. And now this. And the prime minister is nowhere to be found because he wants to distance himself from the speaker, just like he did from David Johnston. Both of these gentlemen, well-respected, had great reputations until they took the job from the prime minister and had to fall on the sword. Why doesn't the prime minister fall on the sword? Why don't we erase him from the record? Why don't we boot him out? 
How many more reputable people have to fall because the prime minister is not doing his job? No idea how to manage the store. That's how stupid stuff like this happens. And for him not even to be present while this man goes under the bus is frankly pathetic and cowardice. It's simply cowardice. Don't want your car to get stolen? Don't buy one? Uh, Leave it in the garage? (laughs) That's about really all you can do because everything else seems to be um, um, a solvable problem. In other words, easy to get around whatever sort of locking devices you have. Uh, Is there a way to stay ahead of this? Are the car manufacturers and everything just being lazy when it comes to uh, staying one step ahead of the bad guys? Carmi Levy with us, technology analyst and journalist, and here now. Carmi, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hi, Scott. Great to be here. As you're introducing this segment, I thought, gee, I better go outside and check my car because, yeah, it's it. Well, yeah. You know, my, it was funny. We had friends. They said, you know, the dog was barking in the middle of the night and they thought, ah, oh, you know, what the hell? And then they went out and the car was gone. So next time the dog's barking, maybe pay attention to that. I don't know. Is that is that the best way not to get your car stolen? Have a dog? Um, I mean, it's- what, what, I mean, certainly vigilance is is not a bad thing because the you know the way that cars are stolen now is very different than they were just a few years ago. Just you know, the card that you buy today, chances are it will not have a key. Uh, it will have a fob, yeah. an electronic device that you press a button and it lets you into the car, which is super convenient. But it also opens up all sorts of new avenues for thieves to do what they do. And it has fueled uh, an absolute explosion in uh, what are called relay thefts, where they stand in your driveway. One person stands at the car, the other person stands at your front door. And they basically uh, connect by radio to the fob that's sitting on the key table just inside the house. And that relays the signal to the car. Then one person stands next to it. They open the door. They get in. They start the car. They drive away. So we've got convenience, but that technology comes with a cost. It's incredibly non-secure. And thieves know this. They've become really sophisticated at exploiting that weakness. And now it's like basically they'll cruise the streets of a neighborhood looking for cars to meet a, a pick list. And before you know it, before you even know that it's stolen, it's probably on a container somewhere being shipped overseas. I saw a report, and maybe you did too, about C- from CBS News. People are saying, you know, I, st- I think there's a link between this and the increased amount of car theft. My God, we've been talking <laughs> about this forever. So uh, is there anything or, or even going back to the old key too 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 much bri- uh, water under the bridge there can't do it. But is it that easy? I mean, um, it seems that we've just become complacent here and we've either given up or we just don't care. Yeah, I mean, I wish we could go back. Like, I my last car before this one had a, a regular old key, and I, called, I delightfully called it a low tech car. And then when I replaced it, I looked for a car that didn't have all of the electronic doodads on it. I wanted something a little more mechanical, something a little simpler, and I couldn't find one. Uh, yeah. And so, if you want to buy a car that doesn't have all the the vulnerable technology, you're going to have to go back in time, and of course, it'll be much more used and much more you know much less reliable. So, it really isn't an option. The industry is moving in one direction and that's loading cars up with as much electronics as possible up to and including key fobs so no that isn't the answer one thing that we can do though is start thinking about how we store our key fobs at night so that that vector that form of attack you know when you go into your house and you just drop your key fob on the key table or on the kitchen table or something near the front of the house uh, it can still be connected to from the outside of the house in much the same way that someone can steal your wi-fi by parking outside so what you do is you put it in what's called a faraday 
cage, which is a metal box or a metal uh, pouch or bag, uh, which blocks radio signals. It's as simple as that. So they can stand at your front door all they want, but they're not going to be able to see uh, the, or, you know, electronically see through radio the fog. Is this? And is then this... they won't be able to connect it to your car. Is this foolproof, Carmi? I mean, is there any way around it? This is the simple thing. Just buy one of these boxes and you're set. That's one thing, but no, there are other because there are other ways for them to steal it. They can break in on some cars, uh, certain models, and I will not say them here. But uh, they, there's something called the CAN or uh, a, a CAN network, which basically they can right. pop into the network. They they open a cover on the you know behind the bumper and they plug into it and they can steal it that way. Or they can break into the car if you're leaving your car unlocked. Don't because they can get into the car, plug into the ODB OBD uh, right. port, which is the onboard diagnostics port, and they can use that to program a new fob so physically secure the car uh, make sure that it is uh, not drivable away uh, if you have two cars and one is a little more valuable than the other part the car that you really care about behind the car that you don't that way it it, it adds another layer of challenge to them we're not going to stop this from happening if they really want your car and it's sitting outside you haven't put it in the garage they're going to get it but if you slow them down, they might just pick. It's like the house with a with you know no security system versus one mm. that's fair to middling. They'll go for the house that's the easiest mark. Same deal with a car. You're slowing them down. Speed is the thing. If they want to steal a car in minutes, uh, and if you make it take a lot more time, they'll find someone else to victimize. Is there anything more car manufacturers can do to safeguard this? They absolutely can. I mean, just recently, Hyundai and Kia have been kind of marked for uh, particular weaknesses in their cars. Some insurers refuse to insure them because the risk of them being stolen through these methods is so high. So these they have introduced new encryption and new forms of security on their electronic ignition systems, uh, which, of course, some security experts are now saying that even that isn't enough. So the industry is slowly starting to recognize that this is a real problem. They haven't invested enough in security, but they're still not catching up. And that's and I doubt they ever will. There will always be a gap and it will always be buyer beware. If you have a garage, park it inside. Uh, if you don't find some way to block it in and watch that fog, because that is just the easiest vector for a, a thief to take advantage of. Let me ask you this, Carmi. Say, OK, somebody does this and obviously they're reprogramming everything because they, mm -hmm. they now have the key and off they go. So there's nothing there that say, well, I can cancel that. I can do the same thing, a reverse of. But by that time, it's gone, I'm guessing. Yeah, exactly. Because by the time you realize it, you know, like the example with yeah. the dog barking at the front door, by the time you realize you're being victimized, if you're not, if you can't be bothered enough to go to the front door, uh, three minutes later, your car is gone. There's nothing <laughs> yeah. you can do in that time to really stop it from happening. Uh, you know, and even if you have security footage, there's really no way there's no recourse. And in most cases, these cars will be shipped overseas often within hours or days. No, there's certainly lots of security footage of people in hoodies stealing cars. So that doesn't seem to be <laughs> my much neighborhood, too, Scott. <laughs> oh, man. Carmi Levy with this technology analyst and journalist talking about keeping your car safe. Carmi, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. So great being here, Scott. Thank you. As we mentioned earlier, about two o'clock, just after two o'clock today, uh, the Speaker of the House, Anthony Rhoda, uh, did finally hear the calls and resign. And uh, we'll wait to see what the fallout is of this. Still have not heard anything from the Prime Minister on this. I want to bring in Marcia Lederman, columnist for The Globe and Mail, and her latest from yesterday. The tribute to a Nazi in the House of Commons is an utter disgrace that could have easily been avoided. Marcia Lederman here now. Marcia, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. I should also say author of Kiss the Red Stairs, The Holocaust Once Removed. Uh, Marcia. Marcia, your thoughts on um, what has transpired before we even get into this uh, and the speaker resigning today? Oh, there was no question.
question. He had to step down. He he no longer had the confidence, not in the official political uh, terminology, but in the uh, broader use of the term of the House of Commons, of the Canadian public. How could he? I mean, we saw it a bit yesterday when he was the speaker presiding over this a very heated debate and discussion over mm. what he had brought to the House of Commons. Uh, he could not continue in that role. There's no way he could have stayed on. So I'm not at all surprised. I'm glad that it's finally happened. But, uh, yeah, it was inevitable. Are you surprised how uh, initially uh, the, the tone has changed for the Liberals? All of a sudden today they started coming out saying, well, he should do the right thing. Uh, Champagne said that. And then uh, Jolie and, and Katrina Gold saying, you know, that he, he should step down. And eventually he did. But boy, it seems like he's the scapegoat. He's the one under the bus, as opposed to uh, anybody who's vetting any people that come in when this leader of a country who's at war with Russia is is addressing Parliament. Um, we seem to be oblivious to all of that, like somehow this man had all the control of the war in the world and just decided to freelance here. Well, I don't know exactly what went down behind the scenes, but the Speaker has the, the right to invite someone into the House, uh, and that's what he did. It was his idea. But why wasn't that person vetted? That, I guess, like, I, you know, everybody can add to the guest list, but again, there's, shouldn't there somebody be at the door? You're in, you're, you're not in, uh, because of just the, uh, the event that it was. To me, it's astounding that who, however many people were involved in this, nobody took two minutes to do a Google search and yeah. see the truth about this um, unit that um, this Ukrainian war veteran was part of. It is there. It took me, as I said, less than two minutes on Sunday to Google it and find the answer. Um, as soon as you see that the unit he was involved in uh, was also a unit of the Waffen SS, that's the time to say, hold on, I don't think we should be inviting this guy. Even the way he was described, and I understand in the heat of the moment, it was very emotional. People believe in the system, as I did. I trusted that this war veteran who had been invited in um, to the House of Commons for this monumental moment um, that he was, uh, someone looked into what he did. But as soon as, you know, we heard that he fought for Ukraine against Russia and knowing that he was fighting in the Second World War, that should have twigged (laughs) immediately to anyone who has knowledge of the Second World War. Russia was an ally of Canada. Russia was fighting against Germany. Nazi Germany. So it's uh, shocking to me that nobody in uh, Anthony Rota's office, uh, which did invite him, took the, took the time to do like a quick fact check, not even a heavy vet, quick fact check. Well, again, it's not like it's just an average day with the school kids coming in to view Parliament. This was a, a, you know, obviously a pretty uh, uh, fortified uh, security measure, you would think. What are your thoughts, uh, Marcia, that uh, Katrina Gold spoke up yesterday and and basically said, I'm looking for unanimous consent to have this all taken off the record? 
to me, that just seems astounding that somebody would even ask for something like that. Yeah, and I understand where she's coming from. She identified herself as a descendant of Holocaust survivors. I'm a child of Holocaust survivors. My parents both survived. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you, it's emotional and upsetting. It's emotional and upsetting for everyone, certainly for the Polish community, the Ukrainian community, and the Jewish community. So I don't think, um, you know, I try to have the benefit of the doubt in her case. I, I think it was... Absolutely the wrong suggestion. No mm. one wants to strike this from the record, and it, it, as if this never happened, it, it would also be absurd. We all know what happened, and we don't want it to disappear from the official record of what happened. So I will, I'm not going to point the blame at her, uh, but I, you know, not a great idea. Uh, the fallout from this, uh, first domestically, then internationally. Oh, it's huge. It's really concerning. Uh, Canada is being, well, beyond the embarrassment, and it is a huge embarrassment, it's being twisted and used uh, by Russia and, um, you know, allies of Russia to, um, you know, to suggest that Ukraine is still a country filled with Nazis, and that has been Russia's take, you know, its propaganda take yeah. all along. We are, we are trying to denazify Ukraine, which I don't believe for a minute. Um, but this, uh, to some people listening, will add legitimacy to that argument, and that's very concerning. Elsewhere internationally, India is grabbing a hold of this. Yeah. India currently in a very... Um, uh, difficult position against Canada and India. It, it, people there are using this to show how awful Canada is. We we brought a Nazi um, into into our parliament and and gave him a standing ovation. That's how it's being painted. And then, of course, domestically, it will be and is being used politically against the liberals as if um, this was not just a, a terrible mistake, uh, but that there was more to it. And I, I'm not comfortable with that. I, I don't like this being used for political gain. It was just, it was just really a bad uh, judgment call on uh, Mr. Rhoda's behalf. Are you surprised we haven't heard more from the prime minister? He hasn't been in the House for two days. Uh, what should he do next? Well, I agree with my colleague, John Ibbotson, who wrote a column saying that Mr. Trudeau has to come in fr out in front of this, and he needs to um, apologize. <laughs> he, needs, he needs to say something, and I completely agree with this. It's not enough for the Speaker of the House, who most people around the world have not heard of. Let's be honest, many people in Canada didn't know about his existence before this weekend. Um, really, this, is, this requires the Prime Minister, uh, the Prime Minister's attention and uh, some strongly worded apology and uh, apologies and explanations, I think, because Canada looks really bad right now. Um, just last week, we were having the same conversation about India, uh, and we probably still would be had this not happened. Um, India, uh, obviously, what's happened with the speaker and such, um, uh, public inquiry prior to that with uh, election interference, alleged election interference and such. 
how how do you how do you juggle all of this? Any one of these by themselves would be a problem. It's definitely a political problem uh, for the Trudeau liberals right now. Uh, should it be? I mean, should we be taking this really unfortunate incident and turning it into a partisan matter? I'm not so comfortable with that. Uh, but, you know, it doesn't matter. It's happening, and it will continue to happen. We are going to hear about this uh, for a long time, especially from the Conservatives. Uh, should there be something else, protocol, procedure, something in place uh, so this doesn't happen again? You'd think that that would already be there. Yeah, there. I, I don't know the logistics involved in vetting every single person who comes into the House of Commons who is there to um, witness democracy happening in action. Uh, so I, I'm not, I can't really comment on what needs to happen. I don't think there necessarily needs to be a change. I think people just need to do their homework. Do your due diligence. Don't, in, you know, don't just blindly invite someone in and then call attention to that person as a war hero. Um, well, you know, that's the whole point, Marcia. At the end of the day, clearly, this person was not vetted. I mean, let's be honest. You can say you can blame this. You can blame that. Clearly, somebody, whether it's the prime minister's office, whether it's the speaker's office, they did not vet this person. And if you're not vetting this person, who else are you not vetting? Yeah, um, I'm not sure you need to vet everyone who comes into the House of Commons. Obviously, they're doing a, a, they do security uh, checks on people who come into that building. But in terms of you know not allowing someone in who might not have the right politics or the right background, that gets into some murky territory. I don't know. I think um, with that. Like, I- I think with that Canadians into the House of Commons, it's another to not do a check on someone who is going to be um, lauded very publicly while the while you've got the head of Ukraine who is at war very publicly in your house. That is a whole other matter. And I would say, Marcia, if you've got the president of Ukraine who's at war with Russia in your house, Every single person is vetted. Every single person gets a 30-second Google check. That's just the way it has to be. Uh, we'll leave it at that. Marsha Lederman, columnist with the Globe and Mail, and a piece today or yesterday, the tribute to a Nazi in the House of Commons is an utter disgrace and avoidable. Uh, Marsha, thank you for the time. Be well. You too. Take care. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. I would like to ask for unanimous consent to adopt the following motion. That notwithstanding any standing order, special order, or usual practice of the House, the recognition made by the Speaker of the House of an individual present in the galleries during the joint address to Parliament by His Excellency Volodymyr Zelensky be struck from the appendix of the House of Commons debates of Thursday, September 21st, 2023, and from any House multimedia recording. As Katrina Gould, leader of the government in the House of Commons uh, for Canada, who was... um, 
the prime minister hasn't been in the house for the last couple of days, so she's been, uh, uh, I guess, manning the ship, so to speak. And yesterday asked for unanimous consent to have the portion of when President Zelensky was speaking to the House of Commons, when the speaker rose and pointed out to the Nazi that was in the gallery, uh, that that be removed from the record, which it, it just seems, uh, I, I guess my first reaction is I, I can't believe somebody would even bring that up. It just is, it seems ethically wrong. And why do we keep records if we're going to erase them? We don't, keep records for when things are normal and boring and nothing happens. We keep records for when there's been a problem or an issue and we need to go back and get clarity on something. So, um, you know, this whole situation with uh, how did this person get into um, uh, the House of Commons and, and I guess the Speaker has free reign to, to bring in whoever he wants, what have you. But there still, you would think, has to be some sort of uh, not not just a security check, but who's coming in. This isn't an average day with the school kids up in the gallery. This is an event where uh, the president of a country is here who is at war with Russia. So um, security, vetting, all of this should be to the extreme, you would think, under these special situations. So, uh, you know, to, to now have record of that erased just seems very bizarre, and it seemed to have fallen by the wayside uh, once it was voted down. Let's bring in Duff Conacher, co-founder of Democracy Watch. Duff, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Yes, I am. Thank you. Are you surprised that this request was made, Duff? It's as surprising as the fact that it took two days for the speaker to resign. <laughs> hmm. I mean, I just, I don't know where these instincts come from. Um, they have nothing to do with actually being sorry. They have to do with trying to avoid accountability. It's ridiculous. This historical record needs to remain, as all historical records do, because voters vote based on government records. And if we're going to start eliminating the record of, of of what governments have done and parliamentarians have done. I mean, that's Orwellian, literally Orwellian. <laughs> I, I can't, I, I, I'm just amazed uh, in some ways and not amazed in other ways, because it really is the approach that the, that uh, the Trudeau liberals and especially the prime minister have taken to these kind of issues in the past, like SNC-Lavalin scandal and the We Charity scandal. They, they spin and they spin and they spin. And uh, eventually when fully cornered, because none of the spin has worked, say something like, uh, I agree with the watch uh, or I respect the watchdog's ruling that this was wrong, but I still have different feelings, which again, it is not apologizing and not, not just trying to avoid accountability and, and try and spin it as nothing. If this isn't a situation that, uh, that that validates keeping records, what would? I mean, this again, we don't need records of when everything's tickety boo. We need records of when things go wrong, and that's precisely what we need here. No, exactly. Uh, reminds me uh, of the RCMP commissioner during the truckers' convoy wanted to talk to the Ottawa police chief and said, "Can we do it on?" by texting because it's mm. easier to erase that record. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. These instincts are completely against every Democrat good government rule that's ever been established. 
You don't erase wrongdoing. You preserve it so that it can be found out if it's not as public as a situation like this. Because uh, often in situations, we're trying to find out who did something wrong and, and you need the full record to know. Is this all the speaker's fault, just a rogue freelancing speaker? Uh, or should there been someone else there to say, okay, uh, who's your list, Mr. Speaker? I, I'd like to go through that. Yeah, just to give one other example, this also reminds me of, which is what's come out of the Ontario Integrity Commissioner's report on the Greenbelt and and uh, the Housing Minister's Chief of Staff and uh, Doug Ford himself using his personal uh, cell phone to do government business, um, mm, yeah, using personal email addresses. None of this is allowed. Uh, in terms of the speaker's fault, yeah, some have pointed out, oh, well, how is this possible? Someone's speaking in Parliament, the Prime Minister must control that. No, Parliament runs itself. I know it doesn't seem like it much because government MPs often vote and support everything that the Prime Minister and their Cabinet Ministers put forward. But Parliament is separate from the Cabinet. Cabinet's the executive. Parliament is its own sovereign body and runs its own affairs. Uh, and we'll just see. There will be, I'm sure, access to information requests. Mm -hmm. uh, and others digging in, and, and they should, to find out who in the prime minister knew what and when, as in all of these situations, <laughs> that, and whether that someone did something. wrong in the prime minister's office also. That seems to be coming up a lot. Uh, what, who knew what and who knew when? That just seems a question we're asking a lot on yeah, various issues. And, and once again, you can't determine that if the record's erased. Dave Conacher with us, co-founder of Democracy Watch, uh, commenting on um, uh, the suggestion that some of uh, the embarrassment of uh, President Zelensky's visit should be erased from record. Duff, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. You too. Take care. A quick break here. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, a couple of things going on in the energy industry. The Canada Energy Regulator has ruled in favor of a trans mountain route deviation. And the International Energy Agency says no new coal or oil uh, pipeline projects will be needed uh, since fuel demand will peak this decade. Dan McTagg is with us, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP and here now. Dan, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am. So let's am. start with the uh, the route deviation for the Trans Mountain. What does this mean? Well, it means the prospect that they won't have to uh, do the alternative, which would be about 1.4 kilometers or so, uh, which might take them an extra nine months. Uh, and if, in fact, the deviation may within within time uh, push the uh, push the completion of the project back well into late 2024, uh, call it 2025. Um, so it's it's an, it's an important uh, you know move by the regulator uh, to uphold uh, the integrity of what had been originally asked. Obviously, it's going to be opposed, but the whole project is uh, well overdue and well <laughs> very much uh, over uh, over uh, over over cost as a result of uh, years of attacking uh, and various groups uh, doing everything they can to stop the twinning of this pipeline. Uh, obviously, this has been a, a, an example of death by delay. Is it moving forward? Will it see a completion date? Well, it has to see a completion date. I think the the, the time would be the beginning uh, in the next six months, as, as early as the next six months. But I think more optimistically, next May or June, we could see that opening. And with it, of course, uh, would be a pretty significant increase in economic activity and 
uh, for the country. And of course, uh, recognizing that 800,000 barrels potentially not having to be stranded or um, really uh, designed and, and, and earmarked only from the United States would actually send the value of Canadian crude uh, much higher. Well, we know this is uh, Western uh, WCS, uh, Western Canadian Select, and other uh, brands would would certainly benefit from this. And the deep discount that Canadians saw on their energy might uh, might actually start to uh, might start to equal what WTI is selling for. That increase of ten to fifteen dollars a barrel, uh, other than you know the cost obviously of tolls, which are going to have to be placed on this to pay for this, um, would, would certainly be a, a significant boost, economic boost to the country. Even one pipeline can do that. Imagine what two or three others could do. Uh, well, the price of this has gone up substantially since we bought it. It has. And it has because the government should not have been in the business of buying what the private sector is prepared to do at no cost to Canadians. But we have um, a position taken by the government of Canada, which is to bend over backwards for every green group that's out there. Uh, I think uh, to the extent that it's really discouraged others from ever wanting to invest in this country. Here's the problem. With the expansion of the Trans Mountain Pipeline, the original uh, builder and owner, Kinder Morgan, had a lock, you know, <laughs> uh, no doubt a lock on a case in which they could have sued the federal government. Federal government gave the permits and kept dilly dallying and playing games and uh, you know trying to be cute with all green groups. At the end of the day, uh, the company had received federal authority, uh, had gone through the hoops to get that, and was prepared to sue the, uh, the the daylights out of the Canadian public and of course the government of Canada uh, for not honouring its uh, its commitment to stand up for its own approvals process. So, having said that, it sent a terrible message across. The world, the company basically decided to pack it in. Uh, the Canadian government had to buy it. And that's why, of course, it's uh, not always a good thing to have the Canadian government or any government do what uh, uh, those on the front lines know how to do so much better. Uh, and it, of course, uh, is one of the main reasons why we're seeing a significant increase in the price. British Columbia, of course, played its card, which was to use every tool in the box to try to stall and delay it for political reasons. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, it's pretty clear to me that the BC government should also uh, be held liable uh, for having driven up the cost of, uh, of this project. Uh, a report out from the International uh, Energy Agency says no new coal or oil pro- projects will be needed since fuel demand will peak this decade. So in the next six years? So this is the same group in 2021, uh, head- headed by its director, Fatih Biral, who basically said no more uh, exploration, no more development, no more investment in fossil fuels, period. Uh, the world had enough. Only to realize about a month later, oops, I got the numbers wrong. I'm off by 2 million barrels. So we definitely need to produce more. And within six months of that, so by the summer of 2021 into the fall of 2021, we had the same International Energy Agency begging uh, OPEC nations to produce more energy because they got it so abysmally wrong. Look, this is an organization that uh, is a is is a branch of uh, the uh, OECD, and its purpose is energy stability uh, and energy to provide a reliable source of energy and to make sure that countries uh, are not left you know flat-footed as they were in 1973 after the Yom Kippur War. Can't believe that's 50 years already. Um, so 
and then OPEC, a new organization, retaliated to, and basically had the world where it wanted on its knees. The purpose of this organization was always to ensure energy uh, sustainability. What it's proposing now, assuming, of course, its data is never correct, as we've seen so many times, uh, it's now proposing what amounts to, uh, you know, pu- a push for the net zero green energy uh, fantasies that have uh, really gripped a lot of organizations like this one. It's not a credible organization for that reason. I believe last week uh, some of the OPEC members who attended the for the Petroleum Conference in Calgary called out the IEA and basically said they're a joke. I tend to agree. All right. Can't let you go. Uh, Being a former Liberal MP, your thoughts of the Speaker of the House resigning today and the whole situation, uh, what happened uh, when uh, President Zelensky was speaking in the House? I know Anthony's a good guy. Um, He was our caucus chair. Uh, I think it took him a little longer to make the decision. I think the decision should have been made earlier. Having done so, I think he did the honourable thing. I don't believe for a moment, though, that that in any way, shape or form uh, should uh, let the federal liberal government of Justin Trudeau off the hook. Uh, there's something called the prime minister's protocol office. Nothing happens when the leader of that magnitude comes to the country. It's done by not an invitation of the speaker. That's sort of the uh, that's sort of the technical. The real invitation yeah. uh, was received and uh, provided by the prime minister. Uh, He has some explaining to do because I think it's it's pretty clear they didn't do their very good job at betting either. All right. Dan McTagg with us, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP. Lots to talk about today, both regarding energy and politics. Dan, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. I will. Thanks, Scott. Big news today at about uh, 2 o'clock this afternoon, just after 2 o'clock, uh, Speaker of the House Anthony Rota steps down, resigns. Uh, very historic. Uh, nothing like this has happened before. Um, and uh, he taking full responsibility for uh, what has happened. Uh, what goes on from here? We're still waiting to hear from the Prime Minister. He hasn't been in the House of Commons for the last two days on this, uh, which has uh, certainly drawn the attention of, of the uh, opposition. Let's bring in Sam Routley, PA. PhD candidate, Department of Political Science at the University of Western Ontario, bylines in the National Post, The Conversation, and The Hill Times, and is here now. Sam, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, Sam, your thoughts on everything that has transpired over the last few days and where we are now? Yeah, sure. Um, well, it's been uh, quite the story, I think. Um, it, it sort of really was this uh, this big mistake you know, made by the speaker's office uh, that that's led to, you know, quite significant uh, national, but also kind of geopolitical implications. Um, and especially given the fact that, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're dealing with a, a government, the, the liberals, I mean, who are sort of already coming off of a, of a pretty bad summer. Um, it's definitely not sort of an ideal scenario, to say the least. What happens now? Um, a surprise we haven't heard from the prime minister for a couple of days. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean that, that uh, I mean, maybe the first thing is that, you know, the parliament will, uh, you know, engage in the, the process of electing a new speaker. Um, and I mean, other than that, exactly how uh, the prime minister is going to respond to this, I think, is uh, will be based off of the kind of broader international impact that this will have. So, because why this is important, why this is, is kind of really 
embarrassing in a way is because it, it doesn't just matter in Canada that 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 other countries, you know, particularly Russia and, and Poland to some extent, you know, to name a few, are kind of using the story or at least the story being uh, is is influencing certain uh, political uh, developments elsewhere. And I think exactly how the story uh, connects to those and kind of develops over the next couple of, of days will kind of determine our structure exactly how the prime minister and the government is kind of kind of is really going to kind of maneuver this uh it seems that the the speaker is taking the fall um uh, the government is saying hey you know he roged he freelanced he did his own thing we didn't know anything about that uh it's got nothing to do with us that being said many are waiting for a a comment from the prime minister an apology from the prime minister should he apologize uh, or is that just strictly left up to the speaker yeah, I mean, for sure, it's it's kind of it's hard to tell at this stage. I'm not ultimately sure if and to what extent the uh, prime minister and his office has a role in this. I mean, right now it would seem like this is this has sort of come out of the speaker's office that it was the uh, speaker's decision to invite him to the to the speech, uh, and that it was the speaker's uh, you know it was his office's kind of failure to properly vet him. So I mean. If we're simply like thinking about who's actually responsible for this, uh, it would seem like the prime minister doesn't have much of a role. Obviously, it could be different than that. Uh, it might change in kind of the coming days. But I mean, if we're talking sort of the politics here, uh, the optics are obviously very clearly bad. And, and I think the prime minister definitely needs to, uh, uh, you know, really kind of condemn it, uh, really kind of patch uh, the. Uh, the, the, the broken kind of upset, uh, you know, people that have sort of expressed their their their, their real kind of uh, distraught kind of feelings of, of, of the fact that this happened. Do you think Canadians are going to buy that the prime minister didn't have a role here, that it was all the speaker's office, that it's all their fault? I mean, um, you know, I don't think the world's going to look at it that way. Um, you don't think the prime minister should take command of this? I mean, after all, oh, it, you know, he, he is leading the country, not the speaker. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, and, and this is this is sort of the um, where where the politics kind of uh, operates differently than the actual kind of functioning of Parliament as a whole. Um, that even though, like I said before, that that even though you know, Prime Minister doesn't technically have a direct personal kind of uh, responsibility. You know, given the fact that the Prime Minister you know, generally, a lot of scandals that happen, a lot of things that go wrong, you know, the prime minister doesn't exactly have a direct role in. But with that being said, the fact that the, uh, the prime minister is in this position of leadership, uh, the fact that, that this is kind of making international waves and that it kind of is saying something about Canada, I mean, it definitely uh, makes sense. It's definitely beneficial for the prime minister to kind of take uh, leadership over this to, to the whatever extent he can. Um, I'm thinking more Canadians would be saying either you're driving the bus or you're not driving the bus. So what does the prime minister need to do today, tomorrow? What does he need to say to Canadians, to the world, to try to fix this? What does he need to do? Yeah, well, obviously, I I, I don't think it would be the best uh, for the prime minister to come out and sort of say it's not my fault, right? I think uh, the government has sort of been saying that over the last couple of days. Um, yeah. You know the the uh, 
right? The speaker kind of came out with a bit of an apology. But Sam, uh, let me ask you, because the, he isn't saying anything and everybody else is saying all these other things, I mean, he, <laughs> come on, either he speaks up and says something or he lets other people speak for him and they're blaming the speaker. Does the prime minister not hold any responsibility here uh, in a leadership capacity? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think what we're looking at is a, you know, it's a, it's a, was more of a formal procedure, uh, kind of done by by Parliament uh, and the Speaker rather than the the government itself. But 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 like I said, um, you know, it's it's not something that the Prime Minister's Minister should necessarily you know tolerate. And I and then like I said, even regardless of of the formalities or regardless of of who actually is responsible here. Um, the implications just mean that the that the prime minister should, in some way, kind of take some responsibility. I'm not exactly sure um, how that's going to happen, but I'm but I'm sure that uh, prime minister's office, you know, as we speak, is, is kind of trying to work that out. Sam Routley with his PhD candidate, Department of Political Science, University of Western Ontario. Sam, thanks for the time. Be well. Yeah, thanks for having me. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Well, we certainly know the public fear around the green belt and preserving that. And uh, it, it's it, it doesn't matter how bad we need housing. You do not touch the green belt. I guess that's the message we get from the reversal of the decision uh, a little earlier on. David Goldreich is with us, Professor of Finance uh, with the Joseph L. Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto and with us now. David, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yeah. Hi, Scott. Glad I'm here. Glad so uh, interesting article in the National Post penned by you. Don't let Greenbelt scandal deny homes to young Canadians. It would still be worth releasing part of the Greenbelt for development in a fair and transparent way. So uh, the reversal, not a good idea, David? I think the re- I mean, the reversal um, is not a good idea. I mean, I, I got to make it clear. What they did was wrong. The process was terrible. The idea of giving such enormous value to people who are well-connected. That's what the allegations are. That's what seems to have happened. That's a a terrible, terrible thing in so many ways. But it doesn't change the underlying uh, uh, idea that that, that we are have a huge shortage of land. We have young people who have no prospects of ever owning a house. Supply and demand are completely out of balance. And the Auditor General's report, although the Auditor General's report was shown as as, as really scathing against the uh, Ford government, about the the plan, but it actually, if you sort of read it carefully, you realize the the real issue. What's really telling you is that yeah, we really do need that land. That land is so valuable as as homes. We need the land so valuable. If so, if we need the land so much to build homes on it. We should be developing it, although not not the process, not by giving it away to well connected people, but by putting it away that can bring the money back into the province and can open up housing. For people who desperately need it. Uh, the one issue of the whole Greenbelt debate coming up, which I found fascinating, David, was that it, it it focused attention on those alternative lands, the 20 to 40 years worth of land we uh, have that we don't need to touch the Greenbelt for, but it also drew attention to the fact that none of that's been developed either. Uh, are we only delaying this debate? Because if we need it now, we'll need it 10 or 20 or 40 years from now. We will, we will need it. We will need it. We need it now. We will need it down the road. People have argued. They say, oh, if you start developing something, it takes 
it takes years and years until it'll actually be homes. Well, mm -hmm. yes, let's get on it. We should have done it years ago. And if you haven't done it years ago, the best time to do it, the best time to start uh, working on it is now. Why is this, do you think, so black and white for some? It's yes or no. I don't know. I think I think people are pretty are, are not very good at, at handling trade-offs, right? People are going to say, oh, that I want to just want to, you know, tear down, you know, pave over paradise, put up a parking lot. Um, and and you know, there's there's trade-offs going on here. I love the green belt, I think it's wonderful. I I hike, you know, near the near the Hamilton waterfalls all the time. Um, but you have to make a trade-off. And at the same time, I want my kids to be able to buy a house someday. I want them to be, I want, I want the younger generation to to uh to be able to afford housing. And that's that trade-off. And people aren't very good with trade-offs. I just want to make one point, if I if I may, about the um about the report. The the we keep on hearing this $8.3 billion uh, uh thrown around as that is the value of, of wealth being given given away. And I really want to make two points about that $8.3 billion, right? One of them is. If we don't, if we undo it when, when we reverse the decision, it is not $8.3 billion coming back to the province. Yeah. It's $8.3 billion that's just going to disappear. That land is potentially worth another $8.3 billion. Mm -hmm. Without development, the land is worth about $240 million. With it, it's worth about $8.5 billion. That huge price. So some people say, well, how can you, how can you sort of give away so much money? But what that is, what you really should be thinking about it is, is that that huge value just shows how desperately that land is needed. If if we had enough housing for everybody, the value wouldn't be there. The yeah. only reason <laughs> why that value is so high, impact the people who value our homes for, for property tax purposes, they're the ones that made the estimate. The only reason why that value is so high is because people desperately need homes. It's, it's, it's all about supply and demand. People, and I think people have a hard time uh, making those those trade-offs and saying, yeah, I do like the green belt. I do like having open areas. I do like I like preservation. And that has some value. But on the other hand, there is the need for homes. And people are and, and people are very black and white. And 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 they miss the 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 nuance and the trade-offs that are necessary in the real world. It's like we can't do both, David. We can't build smart communities and do it the way it's supposed to be done and, and preserve uh, natural uh, beauty as well. Um, how do you convince uh, extreme environmentalists that we do have to build out? Because really, uh, building's been a bad word for the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years in the province. Um, you know, nobody's interested in building anything out. It's all up. And we know that's certainly part of the solution, but only part of it. How do you convince uh, environmentalists that, that really, in a sense, got us in this situation? Um, how do you convince them that we that we have to do exactly what you're saying? I mean, I think it's hard to convince people that think in black and white. Somebody who's who's going to be extreme about it and think in black and white as if as if it's it's infinitely valuable to have have this land. It's going to be hard to to uh, convince them. You need people who can who can who can balance two issues, who can think about two things at the same time and say, yeah, I kind of like I like the green space, but I also need we also need housing. The thing that convinces me is when I look at my kids who who are you know, any I think anybody who has kids of of the age of my kids, you know, young adults. Mm -hmm. um, and who are who are you know just completely see their future slip away from them? I don't think they need much convincing. I, 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 I and so my answer to you is I don't know. I just don't know how to people who cannot think about balancing things and who can't realize that yeah, there's an in between solution here where yeah. you keep some some land for the greenery, you keep some land for the great outdoors, but on the other hand, we also have to have have uh, places to live and places for our kids to live. 
Um, I don't know how you how you convince people who refuse to see if somebody refuses to see that that life is full of trade-offs, that you can't have everything that you want all the time, that you have to have trade-offs. I don't know how to convince people like that. It's amazing to me, too, David, that you could take southern Ontario, which is where the majority of the population lives, draw a line around it and say you can't build anything south of this and not expect prices of that below that line to just go through the roof, which is what has happened. Where do you think this is going? Uh, where Where is this short-term, medium? Where, where does this go? I mean, how, I mean, where does it go? I mean, there's really, I think, a decision to be made. Either we get serious about building housing. I mean, the fact is we're in such a bad state now and building new housing takes so long, right? There's no way out of it in the short run. If you no. can't get out of it in the short run, let's get out of it at least in the medium in the medium run. I mean, eventually you have to do it. I mean, just to make one more point about the Greenbelt, this, this land, this $8.5 billion of extra value that they're talking about was somewhat less than half a percent of the Greenbelt. Yeah. It's a tiny sliver of the Greenbelt. So we're yeah. not talking about knocking down the whole thing here. Right. Yeah. But it does just show us this is really just illustrating for us that the trade off has gotten way out of balance. Right. It's gotten so far out of balance that that uh, um, that, you know, it, it is something that you put the, the longer you push it off, the worse and worse the situation is going to be. I agree. David Goldreich with us, professor of finance, Joseph L. Rotman School of Management, University of Toronto, talking about the great Greenbelt controversy. And it ain't going away. David, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks, Scott. Bye. Obviously, you know by now, uh, or maybe you don't, the Speaker of the House, Anthony Rota, has stepped down. Um, uh, did about uh, 2 o'clock this afternoon. Very historic. First time that that has happened. And uh, it appears that uh, the Prime Minister still at this point hasn't said anything about it. Uh, and it seems to be the Speaker of the House that is taking the fall for all of this. Let's bring in Bernie Farber, Chair of the Canadian Anti-Hate Next, uh, Network, and with us now. Bernie, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well, Scott. Thank you for inviting me. So, Bernie, are you surprised that, you know, is this just a rogue speaker that was freelancing? Are you surprised that somebody didn't vet somebody? I mean, clearly not enough vetting was done, or is this just all a rogue speaker? Scott, nobody did any vetting anywhere. I I sat and listened to the introduction by Speaker Rota of uh, this man, Mr. Hunda, and he was very clear. He said, this is a man, a Ukrainian national, um, who uh, fought uh, during World War II between 1941 and 1943 against the Soviets. Now, either we have a ter- you know, terrible history here in this country, or we don't listen properly, or we don't care. Because anybody who knows a lick about World War II will know that the Soviets were our allies during that time. And if you fought mm-hmm. against the Soviets, you were a Nazi. It's as simple as that. And yet all 300 members of the House of Commons stood up, all speak English quite well, um, and, uh, and applauded. And it's absolutely amazing to me. I mean, it, it's, it's mind-boggling. And you have to know that I have a personal stake in this. My, I'm a son of a Holocaust survivor. Mm-hmm. My father was the only survivor of his uh, uh, Polish village, the only Jewish survivor. And all of them were murdered by the Waffen-SS. So, um, you know, t- to me, this is such a stain, uh, and not just for Jews, I have to say, for Canadian, for families of Canadian soldiers who, who fought bravely in Europe uh, against the Waffen-SS. How does this happen? And I don't really have a clear answer for that. 
Um, what I found fascinating too, Bernie, was watching the person when this was announced. They almost looked embarrassed. What do you think that person? Do you think that person knew? Oh, something. Th- this isn't going to be good. Uh, you know, I have to tell you, I don't think so, and I'll I'll tell you why. The the unit to which he belonged, the 14th Division of the Galizia Waffen SS, was exonerated in 1985 yeah. by yeah. the Deschain Commission, um, and 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 we were told that 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 division did not do anything wrong, basically. Even though uh, after the war, the, the Nuremberg uh, War Crimes Tribunals did find that that same division were, were criminally responsible um, for all, all kinds of hideous things, uh, we found differently. And the problem with the Duchesne Commission is that we have some of its report, but much of it remains under lock and key for we don't know why and we don't know how long. So there's lots of questions. I think this man felt, I'm finally being recognized for the hero that I really am. That, oh, that's wow. what was going through my head. Wow. Um, are you surprised we haven't heard from the prime minister on this? What does he need to do? Well, you know, I mean, I understand I'm, I'm a, an avid watcher of the House of Commons. Uh, he usually shows up on Wednesday, although if I were him, I would have shown up today. But uh, he will be there tomorrow. Or even yesterday. My, expect, my expectation. I don't know. I don't speak to the man. But my expectation is that he is the leader of our country. And we have gone through an international bungling and embarrassment. Um, and, and, and while it is Speaker Roach's uh, uh, responsibility, and it was his fault, Trudeau, Mr. Trudeau, the prime minister, still remains our leader. And I think that he will have to stand up in the House of Commons and uh, give an apology to the world. And I expect that he will do so. Uh, I, I think he is, he is a man of honor, and I would be shocked if he didn't. Where does this go from here if that happens? Ooh, I mean, there's so much here, Scott. Uh, I wrote a piece back in 2020 about a monument that's located not far from where you're sitting right now in Oakville, Ontario, at the St. Vladimir Ukrainian Cemetery. It's a mm. monument that actually honors this very division that Mr. Hunda belonged to, the 14th Galician mm. Waffen-SS Division. I wrote about it. Uh, I explained the whole issue around Ukrainian nationalism and the decades of animosity amongst Jews and Ukrainians and Russians. But that monument is there honoring, really, uh, the Waffen-SS. And yet no one really seems to take notice. I'll tell you one thing that could uh, move this forward is if all of a sudden the House of Commons were to turn its attention to these monuments, my goodness, you know, we, 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 have, we very freely and quite correctly take down monuments dedicated to Sir John A. Macdonald because we found out historically that there were changes in, in the actual history, that we found out really what happened. Is it, would it be a big deal to demand of the Ukrainian-Canadian community right now in that particular private cemetery that this monument is no longer welcome on our property? I think that that's, these are the t- kinds of things that can be done. These are learning moments. And if we don't learn anything from this, we will surely repeat it. I've, I've been doing this work since 1984. I'm familiar with the Deschain Commission. I'm familiar with this division. I've, uh, I've been basically hunting Nazi war criminals my, my entire professional career. And yet Canada never seemed to pay much attention to it till now. And now, it, is, it, now is the time. What you were talking about in regard to this plaque in, in Oakville, is that an excuse for them to say, well, no, see, this has all been, uh, there's just, we're interpreting, interpreting it the di- a different way. Sure. I don't think of it's any of that. Can, but here's the problem. Is it, is it any of that or is it they just didn't have any idea? 
No, no, no. They, uh, the, the people who erected that monument knew full well who they were. No, uh, no, the people – no, but can, can the people who somehow let this person into the House of Commons use that as an excuse, I guess? Uh, they can, but, you know, really, they, w- they would have to plead stupidity really in, in the yeah. end, and, and maybe they will. I, I, I don't know. I mean, to me, uh, it, it, no matter how you cut it, and I understand the issues around Ukrainian nationalism. I mean, Ukraine was under the yoke the of, of, of uh, the Soviet Union and the Russians yep. for decades yep. and decades, and, and they, they wanted to restore their freedom, and they should have restored their freedom. It shouldn't have been, you know, under Nazi rule that they did that. But if you joined a Nazi Waffen SS unit between 1941 and 1945, you were a Nazi. It doesn't matter what your uh, your yeah. actual reasons for doing it were. Yeah. You signed a blood oath to Adolf Hitler, and you were a Nazi. And there is no way. I mean, there are enough people in that House of Commons. There are teachers and lawyers and doctors and engineers. They should have known. And by the way, I say the same about Pierre Polyevre and, and Jagmeet Singh and the Prime Minister, they all should have known once they heard the introduction. Once they heard the introduction. And yet, it's as though history just passes us by. Is Canada a haven for Nazis? It was. They're mostly dead now. This man was 98 years old. Yeah. Uh, the vast majority of Nazi war criminals, alleged criminals that, that came to this country, are dead. But there is no question in my mind that thousands made their way here to Canada and found safe sanctuary um, uh, here, living amongst their victims, breathing free air. And uh, the last one to die was Helmut Oberlander, Kitchener, Ontario, who was a translator, allegedly a translator, for a killing unit, as Einsatzgruppen unit, um, on the on the Eastern Front. Uh, I don't know what translators do for killing units, but you can kind of figure that one out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he and he was brought to court. He had 25 years of justice. His citizenship was, was revoked. It was given back to him. And just prior to his death, his citizenship was revoked. They were waiting for deportation, and he died. Um, How- so, yeah, yes and no, I suppose, is my answer. A uh, short time left here, Bernie. How do we make sure this does not happen again? Education, education, education. There mm-hmm. is a new uh, museum in Toronto, the Toronto Holocaust Museum. It's, it's brilliant. It's beautifully done, if I could say that, of a Holocaust museum. Um, it, it, it tells the story. So that's number one. Number two, the government has now got to release all of the files under the Shane Commission. We have to understand what the thinking was at that time. And I think that there's a lot of shame to go around here, because this goes back to all kinds of governments, conservative and liberal. Uh, so there's a lot for us still to find out. Bernie Farber with us, chair of the Canadian Anti-Hate Next uh, Network, talking about the fallout of the speaker and uh, the resignation that happened today. Bernie, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. You too, Scott. Be well. Bye-bye. Coming up after the 6 o'clock news, the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is here now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am better than the Speaker of the House. How are you? I'm doing well. We'll talk about that in a sec, but police have made an arrest of the bomb threats. Uh, at a series of schools across Hamilton, uh, an arrest made into one threat at Mount Albion Elementary School. Police have arrested a 13-year-old. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> 13 years old, Scott. So uh, I Grounded! Think, I Grounded! Think, yeah, yeah, I heard about this when, when I was coming in. Dave had mentioned this to me as I was coming into the studio, and a couple things crossed my mind on this one. Uh, first of all... Um, 
I have nothing to base this on other than knowledge of what it was like to be a 13-year-old and having been the father of a couple 13-year-olds. <laughs> I don't... Uh, I, I shouldn't will be, be laughing. No, no. I will be shocked if this is not an imitation situation. I will be shocked mm. if we find out that this particular child was behind all of them. Because you know yeah. what? I, l- let's be honest. When you're 13... And I'm not, I'm not excusing this as a hilarious thing or a joke or anything, nothing like that. But when you're 13, you do stupid stuff. It's all relative scale of stupid. Sometimes Mm. stupid is really stupid and criminal. And sometimes, I mean, look, I did, I don't even want to get into all the stupid stuff I did when I was 13. Thankfully, none of it got me arrested. None of it rose to that level. But when you're 13, your brain does not work the way it eventually will, you hope. Yeah. And so I look at this and I go, okay, I, I, part of me hopes this is the only one this kid did. And it was a stupid thing where he or she decided that they heard about this and thought, oh, I'll do that too. What a smart idea. Not realizing how stupid an idea and dangerous and scary an idea it was. Because if this somehow, if we find out that this person is behind all of them, then I get Then I go from thinking what a kid, what a a moment of, you know, a kid doing something stupid to boys or something really concerning about this Mm. child, which is a whole different thing. I'm sure we'll find out more as uh, it develops. All right. uh, The speaker resigning. Any surprises? Surprised that the prime minister hasn't been in the house for two days and he's been relatively silent. Well, the rest of his MPs sort of say, you know, uh, the the speaker should do the right thing. Mm. I have now read, we, I think I talked about it on my show last night. We were talking with uh, Kate Harrison from Summer Strategies. We were talking about this and now I've seen a number of more people, not that I'm necessarily blazing the trail. I don't mean that, but the idea that the prime minister, this prime minister in particular has apologized for seemingly every sin that anyone before him has ever committed. (laughs) And then when it's something that his government, or even, even if it's not his government, he is the face and leader of this country. We are an international embarrassment right now, whether it's your fault or not, you were very willing to apologize for things that were not your fault. Why then now are you not able to apologize for this when the world is watching? It just, it seems like there's a lack of capability to stand Mm -hmm. up and be held responsible for anything that might be pointed back at you as your fault. And it's, what amazes me too, is here's two, uh, just, this is off the top of our head. Don't count the Jody Wilson Raybould. You could go back forever, but you think of David Johnson, well-respected, everybody liked him. Uh, Anthony Rhoda, everybody liked him, well-respected and their lives have literally been ruined because somebody won't do the right thing. Somebody won't stand up and, and take responsibility. It, Again, uh, if this was someone who had never shown a capacity to apologize, it might be a different story. But as I say, uh, how many, how many official government apologies for misbehavior or perceived misdeeds or historical wrongdoings have we listened to? And now, and, and, and beyond that, Scott, here's the other one. How many times over the course of the last few years have someone been referred to either as a Nazi sympathizer, a white supremacist, or some other version of Nazi behavior. And here we have a real Nazi in the House of Commons, and we can't address this 
where like we had, we had a politician to have a picture taken with a swastika a hundred, 200 feet behind him. No idea if he even saw it. He's a Nazi sympathizer. We've got Melissa, Melissa Lastman, who's a a Jewish member of the conservative party being tagged in with being someone who hangs around with people who wave swastikas. It's, it's ridiculous. And then when you finally have a real one, silence. Well, many experts, including Bernie Farber, we just had on, said he has to apologize now. But you know what you'll hear? We all have to do better. As oh, it's it a learning somehow, moment. You're in my fault. Yeah, yes, it's, it's a, a learning, learning moment, moment for, for you and me. But he are, no, he. But Scott, here's the thing. He already did the learning moment thing because yesterday when he did make a statement, he said, well, we can't now fall victim to Russian disinformation. How the heck is this Russian disinformation? This is not Russian. This is, a, that is a, a deflection and an obfuscation and a red herring. But somehow, again, Scott, you and I, Canadians must learn from this and not fall victim to yeah. Russian. This, this is, a, this is a test. And I'll tell you what, we have seen from the polls that he is in real trouble, that people have lost or are losing many of them their yeah. regard for him. And I think this is a huge test for him because I don't know that this is one, you've got a real live Nazi you honored. I don't know that you can dance around this and pretend, oh, it was just Rhoda. It's, it's all him. It's nothing yeah. to do with any of the rest of us. And on the rest of the world stage, they'll all understand that and they'll see, oh, the speaker stepped down. So therefore we're all good. I, I don't see that being the case at all. Scott Radley coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can uh, read him in your Hamilton Spectator. As always, Scott, thanks for the time. Be well. Have a good one, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. This one from Mr. Lowe. Regarding a new Speaker of the House, we need a true Canadian, one that can keep that House in order, one that loves this country, one that has no fear of placing any MP or PMs in their place. My recommendation, Roy Green. There, done. He just needs to dis, uh, he just needs to agree. There you go. Keep right except to pass. 